The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to say a few words of gratitude. The last few weeks have not been the easiest of times, and I appreciate all the messages and comments of support. I'm humbled by these and the fact that this audience has grown by leaps and bounds in the last month. I recently passed the 10,000 mark in downloads, and I published my 30th episode. These accomplishments were only made possible with your support, and I'm eager to discover where the show goes in the next 30 episodes. My guest on this episode is Mike. He joined me from his home near Buffalo. Mike has a connection to an earlier episode. Sean, his cousin and godfather, was my guest on episode 11. Mike reached out after that episode and expressed his desire to relay his own story. He discusses his childhood, military and fire experience, his battle with trauma and mental health, and the road to recovery. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder, you know, love or care about y'all enjoy the show. If you want. All right. So cool. How you feel? You ready? Absolutely. All right. Joining us today is Mike. Mike is from the Buffalo area. He has been a firefighter since 2009. He also had six years of military service, and he's a father of three kids, and I want to let him begin. He'll tell you a little bit about his, his family background, and we'll get into his story. How you doing? Good, man. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Welcome to the show on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so as you as you was saying, born and raised in Buffalo, Chichawaga area. Grew up, born and raised in that area. Up with my parents, I was, my parents were divorced when I was about one or two years old. I got to see my dad every other weekend, so... It was, it was pretty tough. It was like that ever since I could remember, of course, growing up in that aspect with the two parents divorced and going back and forth, I became the middle ground for arguments and fights between my mom and dad. And, and it just at a very young age kind of wore, wore me down and didn't really understand why, you know, if my parents had a fight and kind of, uh, put me in a weird mental place at a very young age. And I never really cared like what they found about. I just wanted them to be happy and, and nice to each other. Like I, I wanted everybody because as a kid, I was that happy go lucky, no sense of evil or bad people. Everything's just sunshine and rainbows as a kid. And, uh, so that's starting off at a very young age. I think that's where everything stemmed off of having issues with anxiety and depression and stuff like that coming into, uh, Coming into that, I, I lived with my mom most of the time and we moved around a lot. We never really stayed in one place. We just had to do what we had to do and became my mom. So me and my mom became like Batman and Robin. We were like just inseparable and, and a good team. I was my mom's most like valuable thing to her and I had her wrapped around my finger. So I got away with a lot of stuff, but I never really was like a bad kid. I didn't do, you know, anything crazy. I just, I saw how I had my mom wrapped around my fingers. She would have a lot more leeway. My dad was more disciplinary. On my dad's side, they're were they're more disciplinary, kind of emotionless men. On my mom's side, it's complete opposite. They're very emotional. They have all their feelings and their heart on their sleeve. I was like mixed of that, you know, of both worlds and put me in a weird spot. And then, uh, yeah, so as long as I can remember, um, going into firefighting, my dad and my godfather, Sean, who you've had on your show, I grew up watching those guys go to calls. Sean was the first thing I remember was that he was the South line guy, but I was very young at that point. I think I, I even have a picture of him feeding me like ice cream cake on my first birthday. He, he was like, God, I think 18 or 17 or something it's and kind of, wearing his kind South of, line shirt. I don't mean to interrupt. I apologize. It's <laughs> fun to, to be able to remind him how old he is. And I'll, I'll, I'll remind him <laughs> next time I see him since I, I run into him quite but, often down here. <laughs> Yeah, I look in the mirror and I see all the gray hairs on my head and I'm like, damn, that dude's old. <laughs> <laughs> He'll then remind um, me that I'm older yeah, than no, him. You're right. <laughs> that sucks. No, it's all good though. But I just, I remember watching him. He got a job at Rural Metro. It used to be Rural Metro before it became AMR in Buffalo. And I remember he'd pull up in his ambulance and I just was like in awe. Like I just, like this dude was like Superman to me. 
And same thing with my dad. I didn't get to see my dad too much, but when I did and I saw him go on the truck or saw him go on calls, or even there'd be times where he'd pick me up for the weekend and he'd get toned out for an accident or a fire and he would just go and I'd go with him and sit there and just watch them do their thing. And I just always was around it. My, my aunt, my uncle, my, on both sides, actually too. My dad's side was more, uh, firefighting. And I think my mom's side had a lot of uh, cops in the family. So I had, I just, first responder was always in my lights and, uh, it, it was awesome to be around that. Of course I fell in love with it immediately. My dad was uh captain of the department he was with when I was a kid, if I remember correctly. And so going with him to calls was just holy crap. Like it was the most amazing thing because seeing my dad be like in charge and going and, and seeing him help people, I just immediately fell in love with it. And that was like at the age of four or five, it was amazing. But having that coming up, coming back to my childhood a little bit, my upbringing was, I'm not going to say my childhood was, it was bad. I definitely had a, I had way more than most kids did. We were not comfortable. We weren't like super poor, but we were like right in the middle. And so I was very thankful for what I had. I was very, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, yeah, just grateful. I, I wasn't selfish. I wasn't greedy. I, I, we, our families just back then and even now with things have always been tough. And if I got like a crappy Christmas present from somebody, I would thank them no matter what it was. I don't care if it was a pencil or a, a Rolex watch. I, I, I love you both the same and I appreciate the thoughts and stuff like that. So that's kind of how, but bringing, being brought up with my parents' divorce kind of, and not nothing against them, but it really, I think started me straight from the start or from the get-go of being screwed up a little bit with anxiety and depression and dealing with certain situations and having behavioral issues, because that's when I was actually diagnosed with ADHD, God, like when I was three before, like I started becoming, before I started having real issues, but. My mom noticed that I couldn't sit still. I couldn't, couldn't even read anything. I, I was just, I, there was something going on where I, I just was too much. And my dad was like, oh, it's just discipline. And she's now, there's something more going on. And of course they would fight about it, but I didn't know what was going on. I was a little kid. I, I didn't care. I just did what I was told to do. And I was put on a medication called Ritalin at the very young age of God. I, I don't even remember how old, but it must've been like four or five because I. I know I could, I knew how to take medication at that point. So I wasn't like a little kid, but, but trying to focus on anything was super hard. Like I couldn't, I couldn't read a sentence from, for more than a second without jumping all over the page, which is why I have to have everything written out as I do now. I'm like literally reading it off my laptop because if I don't, I just jump around because I can't keep my mind in one. So trying to focus was extremely hard. I was very energetic, very hyper, but I had a huge heart as a kid. I just wanted to help people. Like I grew up in, and saw, I just grew up in that lifestyle. So that's where I was. And I had a lot of imagination. I was, you know, creating stories and, and drawing things that some kids couldn't even think of. And I was very talented artistically and uh, very, very gifted and being someone that's always there for somebody and not to beat my own chest or anything, but I just, I'm very, I, I will put people before, you know, me any day. So going through that, I became very emotional. And as a kid, of course, because I wouldn't understand. I didn't understand. Like I, of course, as a kid, we don't understand divorce. We don't understand, um, why families break apart and we don't, we, we get that the motions, but we don't like mentally understand why this happened and why mom and dad don't like each other or why mom is with this guy or why dad doesn't want to be with mom anymore. I never really, I thought about it a lot, but I never really talked about it too much, but I, it became, I became very emotional because I held a lot of stuff in and, and that became, and that, that made me very emotional to myself. Like I became very self-destructive and, and also became very dependent on my medications at a very early age. Right off the bat, I was on a very hardcore medication that Ritalin they found out was not very good for kids in, in the first place. So yeah, I was on this hardcore medication and then I kept getting switched between different medications and coming into that, I, I just. I wholeheartedly believe that some things that we deal with as adults stem from the shit that we went through during childhood, but it's also our place to where like, you can get the help. You can try to figure it out. You can have counseling therapy. You just got to admit that there's an issue and that it's not your fault. And then you got to move forward and just try to be a better person than what you grew up and saw. Again, like I'm not trying to say anything bad about my parents, just going through what they went through. They did the best they could. But seeing what mistakes they made, I, you can take that and try to not be like that. In, in your life, 
and I know this because we've talked a couple times about it. You had a lot of change in your life as a kid. Oh my God. You, you roamed around a bit with mom from, yeah. And mom and dad divorced one to two or one to two years old time frame for you. Then, you know, your mom had other relationships. You had a stepfather who it turned out to, to abuse you a bit. Correct. Yeah. Um, um you, yeah, he was military. You guys butted head and you, you, you go through that. And then you, you got time with your dad and then then a stepmom appears with dad. And then that's a whole different change for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. My mom remarried twice. The first time she remarried was this guy and he was the one that he was, he didn't really know how to be a dad. He was just a uh, kind of a richie guy that would take care of us. And I, I, my mom was looked generally happy. So I like to do, but over time, things just went sour and I, he, his real true colors came out as we moved on with our life. And then he, uh, started getting physically abusive and doing stupid stuff, torture, kind of like torturing me, like by putting me out on the porch in the middle of a blizzard or chasing me around with the vacuum cleaner. Cause he knows I was scared of it. Like just stupid crap that you just don't do to a kid, man. And, and he was just a crappy person. And then the one day my mom walked in on him, kicking me yeah, when I was on, he pushed me off the couch onto the floor. Cause my mom had to leave to go to work. She must've forgot something came in at the right moment and just caught him in mid kicking me on. The, and that was it. They had a full out fight right there. And, uh, and, she, and he left and uh, I remember staying in my room crying and he, they got into it and then he ended up leaving. I never saw him again. And then when she met my stepdad now, Mike, yeah, it was uh, a whole different feeling. Cause he was a true like father figure. He had two kids of his own that became my stepbrother and stepsister. He was actually my baseball coach. So he was just a very family oriented guy. And uh, yeah, and he was military, ex-military and very disciplinary. And so him and I butted heads, right? Like almost right off the bat because I was such a hyper crazy kid. And the way that my dad thought, he thought the same kind of way where I just needed discipline. So that's what my mom tried to fix me with medication and counseling and therapy and and uh, comforting me. And then my dad and my stepdad were the other, the other, the opposite of trying to discipline me into what they thought I needed to be. So it was very like up and down. Yeah, it was very crazy. And not to mention that I think a lot of this stemmed from when I was the center of a tent most of my life with my mom. And then all of a sudden, She's married with this guy that's got two other kids that they need to take care of as well. And then on top of that, they had two kids of their own. So now I'm fighting for attention that I've never had to fight for before. And that kind of screwed me up too. So it was just a whole mix of emotions and, and a very strange childhood to say the least going through that. But yeah, so after my mom, you know, married my stepdad, now things kind of got better or, or started off pretty good, but then got worse as it went on. And yeah, and he just quickly got annoyed with me and, and, and just got this one kind of sound. So my dad, on the other hand, on the other side of things, he started dating who was now my stepmom. And she was very proper, grew up in a, a rich, richer kind of family, putting, you know, they, they would go out to fancy dinners, put napkins in her lap, stuff like that, have very good manners. So she, she had experience babysitting kids and stuff like that. And she, again, was more so of the discipline, but also the comforting side. So she was a good kind of mix of it. But yeah, she put a boot up my ass as much as my stepdad did. And, and not to, like I said, not to say anything about my parents or anything that they did wrong, but I got a lot of my, a lot of who I am today is, is because of my step parents. And I can't thank them enough to this day that, uh, you know, what they've done for me and, and shaped me into the person that I am today. It's weird. Like I just, I got a lot of issues and stuff from my childhood. I, I do, I do like how I am and, and who I am and but issues aside, I, I think they did a good job trying to raise me, especially when you have a step parent that takes you in and, and you're not even their child. Like I just, you know, shout out to step parents that are doing that. My wife's a stepmom to my kid. So it's just, it's amazing to see someone be able to do that. And uh, so shout out to all the step parents out there. You guys are killing it. Keep it going. You guys are appreciated. Tell me a little bit about how you found your way to the army. Yeah. Oh God. So coming into school and stuff like that, I was having a lot of issues in school and I eventually like with my mom, having two more kids with my stepdad on top of my step kid, my stepbrother and sister. And it was just, I wasn't getting the attention I needed. And my dad was picking me up like every day to help me with homework. Eventually we're just like, Hey man, why don't you just come live with me? And, uh, and I did. So him and I moved into this apartment together. And then at this point he 
I think at this point he was married to my stepmom or they were about to get married, whatever it was. But then we ended up moving in with her. So now we're living with my stepmom and I'm living with my dad and my stepmom at her house. During high school, me and me and Liz started butting heads a lot because at this point I'm already pretty screwed up with my emotions. I'm, I'm very kind of emo pop. The world sucks. Everybody, I, I ate everybody now. Like I told, I, I made a complete 180 of how I used to be as a kid. And I was hitting that stage of like teenage young adulthood where I'm realizing that the world is not what I thought it was and everything sucks. And, uh, and I could not see the bright side of anything. And, uh, and my dad, you know, I kept getting in trouble at school. I, my grades were, my, my grades were going to crap. I really wasn't involved in any fire departments at this point. I, I shied away from that since growing up and, and didn't really, cause my dad at that point quit the fire department as well and didn't really talk about it that much anymore. So I don't know why that ever happened. I don't know you know, what went down, but yeah, my dad's, my dad was in the Navy reserves and one day him and I got into a physical altercation and, and he finally was like, you got to figure your shit out, dude, cause you're not going to go anywhere. And you're either going to, at the age of 18, you're going to graduate high school. You're not going to go to college cause you have shitty grades and you're going to get in trouble and God knows what's going to happen to you. So he's like, why don't you think about joining the military? And I was like, yeah, okay. That is not for me, dude. No way. I, I was completely against it. I never even thought of it. And I, I, that was never even a thought to me at all, um, in high school because of where I was. But then I remember back when I was a kid and seeing the twin towers get hit and, and I wasn't really looking at the soldiers that were going to war and be like, oh, I want to be like them. I was looking at the firefighters and I was like, man, I want to be like those guys. I want to be those guys rushing into a building and stuff like that. So that I didn't really know where to begin with the fire department. Well, I did, but it was just, I was already in so much trouble and being a trouble kid that I didn't really have the motivation at that point. So I went to go talk to the recruiter. I was a sophomore in high school, I think at that point. And, and I was, yeah, I think I was like 17 and I had to get my parents signature because I ended up joining the future soldier program, which is where you can join early and then do like college courses online to get promoted before you're even in. That's what I did. And I was actually supposed to go to basic training between my sophomore and my junior year or my junior, and my senior year, whatever it was, but they didn't have enough spots. So I had to wait till I graduated high school to go into basic. So not a big deal. I didn't really care at this point. I just was like, screw it. I don't even care. I had a girlfriend that actually became my first wife in high school. And she broke up with me when she found out that I was joining the army. And it was just like, and she was my first love. So that completely devastated me. So at this point I am, I'm broken. I'm burnt. I'm emotionless, not emotionless. I'm just pissed off and I'm like, screw it. Why not? Let's just do the army because at this point I don't even care anymore. And I kind of went into the military with the mindset of they can do whatever the hell they want to me. They can't make me feel any worse than I do now. Because of course, as a teenage kid, that's what we think of and, and, and reality quickly set in. After, uh, after graduating high school, that was it. I was, I was off to basic. And I know that when we talked and obviously people are going to know what basic training is like and, and all that, um, you just, you, the most important thing I think from what we talked about was it just clicked for you. And, yeah. Yes. And so I get that feeling of the, uh, the structure just clicks for somebody and, and it just helps. Where's your, where's your first, what we would call in the military, what's your first par permanent party? What's your first? Yeah. So I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for my, my training, my, my basic training. That was the first time I actually ever traveled out of the state or even been on an airplane. I had never really traveled since then or before. So that was a huge thing for me. So everything was cool and new and, and everything was, it was like, it was, that, that was pretty much it. it. Everything was brand new to me. So it was an adventure. So I, ha I was having a blast. And, uh, and when we got in there, of course we're on the bus and we pull up to the place and we get off and we're all standing there parade rest with the, you know, our bags by our side. And then they do what they call the shark attack and all these drill sergeants come out and they just start yelling here. And this is like one o'clock in the morning. So we've been driving all day, flying all day. We're in a lot of sleep and we just get there and we're exhausted. And it was like the worst night because we didn't sleep at all. I don't think we ever got to sleep that night. We just went through the shark attack where they come in they take all your personal belongings. If you have anything and it's just, you get blessed into the basic training area. And, and that was it. And I, I started my basic training. And as soon as I started it, 
something clicked, like you said, like I said before, and I just felt like this is where I needed to be. I was with a bunch of guys that were doing the same thing. We were going through the same stuff together, which was different for me. I never had anybody that I could relate with going through the same stuff as. So it was pretty, it was a pretty cool feeling. And with the whole yelling and the disciplining from the, the drill sergeants, like it never really bothered me because A, for some reason I was squared away. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was just like fear or just knowing this is my start. This is my chance to start again, start fresh. And, and that's where I wanted to go with it. But yeah, I, I just. I never really had to get yelled at. If I did get yelled at, I took it as a learning lesson and I, I knew it wasn't like personal or anything like, and I just was just killing it. I was doing the best at running. I was doing the best at shooting. I was um, a leader and that was my first time ever like being like a leader and having that feeling of pride, having actual pride and doing something right and having people follow me and listen to me. But yeah. So I finished, uh, finished basic training and then stayed, I think I stayed there for my a my AIT, which is my advanced individual training, which is your job training. So I, I got, I was, I wanted to sign up for infantry because I wanted to be in the action. I wanted to be at, at the point when I was signing up, I was still against it. And so I wanted to be like, okay, you want me to join the fuck you? I'm going to join the infantry and make you think about this. And my dad's like, no, he's like, you're not joining the infantry. And cause I had to get my parents' signature to get in. So I, they had like choice of what I was doing. So he sh the, they showed me a video of blowing shit up and, and artillery guns and crap like that. And uh, I was like, cool, yeah, let's do that. I like to blow shit up or I want to try to blow some shit. And of course the videos make it look so fucking cool. And then you get there and you're like, oh, this is uh, not what I was, but no, it was, it was fun though. I had a lot of good times. I, I, I excelled in uh, a lot of the physical and shooting aspect. Cause of course I've been hunting since I could walk my dad's that's been one thing me and my dad have been doing our whole life. He taught me how to hunt. And that's one thing that really, you know, ties me and him together. But, but when it came to the academic stuff, I didn't realize how much like math and equations and stuff that went into my job. And I started failing at some of the tests and I was getting scared because they're like, if you can't pass this, we're going to have to reassign you to a new job, which would probably be infantry. So I called my dad and I told him that. And he's look, he's just do the best you can. He's buckled down. He's don't worry about all the other shit that you've been through. He's like, just, just focus on what you're doing now and do it for you. And when he said that I've never done like anything for me like that, what he was saying, I've never really took a chance to think about that. I was like, all right, cool, cool. Like, I, you know, and I hunkered down and I had my drill sergeant help me out with some shit. Cause I really sucked at math. And then I passed, I finally passed and, and I got through it. So it was, yeah, it was great. And I was super ecstatic. And then I uh, came to the part where we were getting told where we we're going for our first duty station and, uh, and you could put in two choices that you want to go to. So I picked one out of state. I think I picked like Germany or something. And then I picked, I think North Carolina or something. I don't remember what I picked, but didn't get any of those. They were going down the line and they're like private Kozlowski. I was like, yes, drill sergeant. He's going to Fort Polk, Louisiana. I'm sorry. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Uh -oh. Any, anybody like, oh. that's been in the military knows what that I'm sorry means. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh boy. Um, uh, I'm like, that doesn't sound good. And they like showed me videos and pictures of this place. And it was just like, I was like, oh God, um, this is going to be interesting to say the least. We sh I think I went to go see my family before I went to Fort Polk. So I got to go see them. And I think it was at that point. I can't, I, I and I might be wrong. I can't remember if I got to Fort Polk first. Yeah, I must have, because that's when I got told that I was deploying. So I got to Fort Polk first and they're like, Hey, I got off the plane. I was in the airport. My staff sergeant picked me up and he's like, you're private Kozlowski. I'm like, Roger that sergeant. He's like, welcome to Fort Polk. You're deploying in three months. Get ready. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And it just hit me with that right off the bat. And I was like, oh shit. Like I was not expecting that. Like I knew what I was signing up for. I knew that we were in the middle of a war. I knew there was a lot of deployments going on, but I didn't think that my job was going to be like straight up deployment. And uh, I thought I'm like, oh, I thought that's like for the infantry guys quickly. I real or then quickly I, I found out that we are attached to a light infantry unit. So that's what we were a rapid deploying unit. So we deployed every other year. I didn't know that, <laughs> but it was all good. I was actually super excited because that's what we signed up for. We joined the army to not for the bullshit, not for the money and all that crap. We joined because we want to go to war. We want to experience it. We want to do it. We want to go be badass. We want to go 
be all you can be. So I was ready. I was so, excited. I was ecstatic. Where do you end up with your So I go to, so my first appointment before I went, I, we, they sent us and my stepmom had to go somewhere. So I tried to whisper to her cause we were in the airport and I was like, Hey, just to let you know, I'm not going to tell anybody yet, but I'm deploying when I get back and she's oh shit. And I guess someone over from, from my family overheard it. And they're like, you're deploying and said it out loud in the airport. Everybody heard it. And of course my mom starts crying. Everybody's oh my God. And I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm like, it's all good. We'll figure it out. And it was classic. Husky. He's like, oh, hey, welcome home. I'm deploying. All right, cool. So I go to Afghanistan, my first appointment. And uh, yeah, it was, I got back to Fort Polk. And I think we deployed like what a month later. And I, I can't recall like what, when we went over or what the month was or anything like that. But I remember it quickly got cold and it was snowing and we got a lot of snow where we were up in the mountains. Yeah. I was in a place called Fop Shank, um, in Afghanistan and, uh, Logar Providence, <coughs> excuse me. And we were, Fog Shank was a huge fob and a fob is a forward operating base. Um, and there was out like cops, which is a combat outpost. So you have your big areas, which is your fobs and then your little areas, which is your, your cops. And uh, we were like in charge of making sure everything was going okay in our area, which was God knows how big the area was, but we were literally like center command for everything that was going down in our area. And I quickly was throwing into, thrown into a spot that was, was very difficult for me because I've never experienced any responsibility like that, but it just came so natural from the training and everything else that as scary as it was, we, we handled business and it was pretty good. It was, it was a good deployment up until the, the snow melted and around March, they always called it, they called it March madness as a cliche that they, so I, I quickly found out that they call Fox Shank rocket sit. And that's cause we literally took rockets. Like every day we took around maybe some small arms fire and, and that's just how the rest of the deployment went. We, they came out of the caves and they just started firing rockets at us. And it got to the point where I, I quickly found a, a switch in my brain that you had to that most most first responders and military guys understand wholeheartedly what this switch is and it's when you just got to flip it and deal with what's going on and then worry about your feelings and emotions and all that crap later because right now that shit don't so when we took rockets it never really never really mattered it just it was just another day in the life and and it became so such a habit that or it became so common that if we didn't hear prayers in the morning you know, with the guys over the, the speakers doing their prayers in the morning, we knew that we were probably going to get rocketed because that's usually what happens. And there was this patterns and, and, and we just started to get so comfortable with the way of that. And that's something that with everything that I went through and being the way that I was emotionally, I didn't know how much it was fucking me up, um, until I got home, but you know, um, it, it was just, I wasn't living in fear anymore. I was just living in, okay, we have been rocketed this whole 11 month deployment. I'm like, when are we going to just finally get hit? And just, I, it was just so fun. I couldn't sleep. I wasn't able to, you know, really sleep much. I worked out work. So we did 12 hour shifts. So like we would do a 12 hour shift and then be off for 12 hours. And so whether you're working or it was either working or working out and that was pretty much all you had to really do. And, uh, and yeah, so that's where I first got that switch in my brain to, uh, learn how to manage my emotional, what's the word? Um, my emotional, uh, stress so at that point. When you say the switch in your brain to learn how to manage, do you think it was managed in a healthy manner or was it just a compartmentalization basically? And, and you, you pushed it away. Yeah, it became, yeah, it, it, it became natural. It wasn't like really something that I was able to do. It just happened. Do and you, I started, I guess what, I guess my question is, were you dealing with it or just putting it away? Oh God, no. Yeah, no, I just, no, we, uh, we didn't have time to, we couldn't. You're on deployment, man. You don't have time. I mean, you can go talk to the chaplain and whatnot, but of course no one ever really did that, but no, we just dealt with it and we just put it away. We smoked a cigarette, went to go work out, did whatever we had to do, and then just kept, you know, moving on with the mission. Yeah. So that's, and that's how the whole deployment went. You know, no one really talked about it. Even when we fucked, even when we took our first, our first round, it blew up, it, it hit right the front porch of our building and, uh, 
I got, uh, I think I got a concussion from that one or something happened. I can't, but it's, that's when shit got real when we actually got hit in the middle of the night. And then from that point on, we had to do light discipline. We, we couldn't use white light at night anymore. Cause I guess what happened is we saw the light around the edges of the door and they just aimed their dish gun and just shot it. And, and that was it. They, they got us right on. And that was a wake up. That was like a wake up call. And that's where everything changed for me. And for a lot of us, because a lot of us got stressed out after that. And we had to call home to our families, let them know that we weren't dead and shit like that. Shit became real. Cause I was only like 18, 19. When this was going down, I went from being a punk ass kid to dealing with some big boy shit real quick. And um, we had to just shove that shit away and just keep striving around with the mission. But yeah. So that was my first appointment, man. We got blown up twice. I, I, I say we got blown up because like what I didn't get like physically, I still have all my limbs and shit, but we had two missiles that hit us pretty close on the tent next to my tent got blown up and peppered my room with shrapnel. I got some in my arm and crap that I didn't even know about until a week later started blistering and I was like picking out metal on them. I don't think I told anybody about that. Um, but so, cause I was just a dumb kid. I, I just wanted to get home. I just wanted to have it be over with. And then the other one that I, the earlier one that hit right outside of our building is the one that was the start of everything. And, and then I learned that, you know, if, as long as the, the round was landing like 10 feet, more than 10 feet away, we're okay, whatever, fuck it. Let's <laughs> just keep moving on. And, and a lot of guys were brought from the bunkers. We, my job, I couldn't do that. I had to run to the building and get a grid on where the enemy possibly was so that way we could shoot back so they, they don't keep trying to kill us. So as everybody's laying down and trying to get cover, we, we're shooting back. We're running to the building and shooting back. And, and I kind of like that. I, I like that responsibility, to be honest with you. It kind of made me feel more badass than I was. But, but yeah, that was my first deployment, man. That was pretty much in a nutshell. So you, you come back in 2012-ish, correct? I, I'm not sure exactly what day yeah, or what, yeah. what month it is in 2012. But you come back 2012 back to Fort Polk, correct? Yes, yeah. And then uh, this is when you first find, you find a volunteer company. A volunteer fire company that's that's on post yes how do you no, get well, in? no yeah no um sorry it was off post but i oh closest to i'm closest, sorry yeah so i didn't realize that we had a fire department on base and i know I, again i've never really traveled i've never really been around much when i saw the fire trucks and the police officers like escorting our bus back to fort polk and it said Fort polk fire department on the side i was like oh shit i didn't know we had a fire department that's badass so i'm like i'm gonna, I'm gonna look into that Cause I, I really wanted to join up with the fire department. Cause now I'm back home from this mission. I'm back home from Afghanistan and I still can't sleep. I'm constantly like waking up, like looking for my rifle, like where's my weapon and, and thinking that I'm hearing like the incoming alarm. So I, I need to occupy myself with something because being back in, in the garrison, being back in the rear D <clears throat> I was like losing my mind and I already knew that. So I just, I'm like, I want to get into something else. So. I called Fort Polk Fire Department and I'm like, hey, I want to join up with you guys. How do I go about doing that? And oh, we're a paid department. This is actually the Air Force and the Army guys were firefighters there. He's like the closest volunteer department is right outside the Sandy Hill. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I, I went to go, I called the chief and he's like, yeah, we do meetings on Wednesdays. Come on by at six o'clock and we'll see what, uh, what we can do for it. So I went there that night, still in my uniform. And, uh, cause I just got off work and then I pull up and there's six other guys in uniform and I was like, oh shit, no way. And I, I didn't really know any of them, but I recognize a few of them and I'm like, Hey, what's up guys? I'm like, Hey man. And, and, uh, I'm like, I didn't know you guys were into this too. And they're like, yeah, me and a couple other guys from the post keep joining up that night. And, so and what's, what's that volunteer experience like in, in a nutshell? Cause I know that you, you have a second deployment, but between the first and second deployment, you do have quite a bit of stuff to, to talk about from the volunteer experience, volunteer experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mistakes and mistakes were made of course at first, cause I'm a brand new guy and you get in there, you do some training they fit you for gear. They uh, see what you're made of. And then once the chief blesses off on you, you get your, your pager and you can start responding to calls. Of course, it didn't take long for me to, to prove my, my skills or whatever. And went right into responding to calls. So I, I was that, I was that, that new guy, the FNG sitting there by my page for waiting for that, that fucker to go off. And I'm just like, come on, dude, like I want to go on the call. And, uh, and at this point I have, uh, I'm married to my wife, my first wife now. And uh, we found out that we're having a kid. So that's a big thing that happened. And I went home after my first deployment, got married, 
And then I joined up with the fire department and everything's going well. Like my life is going fantastic right now. I, I love my life. Everything's great. And I started going, my first call was a working trailer fire, double wide trailer fire. And, and was, like I said, mistakes were made. Like I, I was super gung-ho and I, I flew past the fire station. Didn't even think about going to the station. I just went right to the call because the, the fire was actually right down the road from our station. And my LT lit my ass up. He's like, dude, you go back, you go to the fire station. You don't just go to the scene. You go and grab a truck if you can, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I had a good team. I had a good leadership. Uh, all the guys were military. My LT and my captain were military. And, and they, in the way that and I even asked them, like, hey, how would you describe me when you first met me? And they're like, you're, you're a very proactive gun ho and you wanted to do everything. You wanted to put the fire out. You wanted to grab the ladder. You wanted to grab the chains you wanted to just do everything. And I was just super gun ho about firefighting and I, I wanted to do it all. So that's how my first moments of being a volunteer firefighter went was just, I, I just dove right into it head first. And I just, and I wanted so much. I just, I could not get enough of it. Um, the calls that I went on that kind of started changing things, just like we had a lot of accidents. We had a lot of drunk driving accidents, um, a lot of semi-truck rollover, quite a few structure fires, but the ones that really stuck with me were the accidents because that was the first time I ever see, I've seen like bodies that were like mangled and, and twisted up. Seeing that was like a new thing for me, even after going through war, like it's just kind of different to see like a, a, a random civilian that's not trying to kill you or anything like that. They just were in the wrong place, wrong time, or they just did something wrong and or they, whatever. And so going through some calls that were tough, my first time that I saw a dead body or had an experience and deal with a dead body was when I just got promoted to Lieutenant and we got on scene of a single vehicle rollover crash. And this female was getting driven home by her boyfriend. They lost control of the truck and they flipped it. And she went through the front windshield. He went out the back windshield and uh, she died on impact. And when we got there, I, we already knew that there was a DOA but they needed help to like move the bodies and take pictures and stuff. I told my guys like, Hey, I'll, I'll handle this. You guys help out here because I didn't want them having to deal with that. And, and that was the first time that I had to put hands like on a dead body, not besides like CPR and stuff. And, and when I moved her, she, that last breath came out of her and it, cause she, she was already dead, but that, that last exhale of the body came out and it really, uh, fucked me up. And, and I still hear that shit in my nightmares, man. It, it just was a sound that I've never heard before. And, and, uh, kind of freaked me out a little bit, but other than that, we, I've been on plenty of other calls, suicides and, and stuff like that, that really could just keep me awake at night. But, uh, just going through so many calls like that, you just get numb to it and you just keep striving on. And it's just like kind of another day at the office, not that we don't care about these people, but you're just so used to it. And, and it's just another patient. It's an, it's another person and, and you do the best you can to, to save them. But it really started to take a toll on me and I didn't even realize it because I was so gun ho. I'm like, there's nothing about firefighting that's ever going to make me not want to do it until it caught up with me. And that started happening pretty quickly. After I got out of the army, I started going down a, a slippery slope of drink. I was already drinking quite a bit because that's just what you do in the military, man. That's just like your pastime. But I started drinking way more than I should have. And of course, like I'm not even of age, so I shouldn't be drinking at all. But then I started using it as, it's not that I'm having nightmares right now, but I just can't get to sleep. I just, I am not tired. I just cannot find a way to get to sleep. So I'm just going to drink until I get tired and then go to sleep. And that's kind of how I started uh, handling my sleep issues was just to drink. And, uh, and yeah, when I was in the military, I actually got into some trouble because I didn't realize how bad I was the, the night before I dry at this point, I was drinking super heavily and I got to work the next morning, PT formation, six o'clock in the morning. And I, and I apparently still reek of alcohol and, and Hey man, you know, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, fine. I did the whole, you know, the whole five mile run, everything was fine. I, and they had me. So even after doing PT, I, they had me blow because they're like, you reek and we need to test you to see if you're drunk. And I had a blowing like a point one something and I didn't even, and they're like, how'd you get to work today? And of course, like my car's sitting right there and I'm like, shit. So, um, they're like, well, look, we can either bust you for your DUI and kick you out of the military, or you can go to ASAP and try to handle your situation and, and get better. ASAP being and, the alcohol prevention yeah, program uh, in the military, correct? Yeah. The army substance abuse program. Yeah. So that's where I went with that. And I was there for about a month. They put me on a shit ton of medication, which I was, of course I was used to. 
And, uh, and I got to talk to a lot of people that were going through the same thing. And when I started to realize that I wasn't alone with this situation, because I'm like, these guys don't know what I'm going through. These guys don't understand that I, on top of going to formation and work every day at the military, I'm going to calls in the middle of the night when they're sleeping and they don't understand the shit that I've seen. They don't understand this. They understand that. But there was a lot of guys that were both, there was a, a firefighter army guy. There was a Marine that got his leg blown. He was sitting, he was a heroin addict and, uh, he really sh shed some light because this dude took it upon himself to say, Hey, I need help. And, and yeah, so I, I met a lot of guys that were going through a lot of trauma as well. And knowing that I wasn't alone made me feel way better about communicating and talking about it. And I was there for about a month and then I kind of, I, I, they called it graduating. I graduated from it and went back to my, my duty station. And, and at, at that point I already knew that I, I wanted to get out and become a full-time firefighter because the way that my military career was going, I wasn't getting to where I wanted to. I was in a fenced in unit, which means I couldn't move. I was deploying every other year because I, like you said, I had another deployment and, and I just didn't want to keep being in the same routine. I didn't really like the job that I had anymore. I wanted to be a firefighter or a combat medic. And of course they wouldn't let me reclass either. I, I don't like to talk a lot of crap about my unit because there was a lot of good leadership, but there was a lot of really bad leadership too. And just put a really bad taste in my mouth for, you know, staying where I was. So after my second deployment, I decided, you know, I'm going to do my last two years and then I'm going to get out so and, I, and I'm going to. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, and then, I, and then I'll become a firefighter. So you do your last two years still at Fort Polk? Yeah, so I was there the whole time besides my two deployments. And you spend that entire time still doing the volunteers, the volunteer work? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I actually went through, and I'm not going to get too much into it because like we, we're trying to wrap up some time here, but I went through so much crap. Like my first sergeant that I had back in the day when I became a firefighter was super against me being a firefighter for some reason. And he's like, if you're not army all the way, then you're not, you don't belong here. You should be focusing on this. You should be focusing on your job. And it's not like we had anything strenuous. It's not like we're like doing anything crazy, but this guy just, if you were at all about like artillery, five, two, five, whatever, like you're, you suck. And this guy just had it out for me all the time. And he literally wrote a letter saying that I wasn't allowed to respond to calls anymore, which of course I ignored. And they threatened me with an article 15. So I challenged it. And luckily I had a uh, master sergeant that was actually one of our chiefs that I had talked to them and they finally left me alone and uh, he got reprimanded, I think, or something happened. And they finally told him to cut the crap because I was literally volunteering my time to help people. And it was just ridiculous how, how much crap they put me through about being a firefighter. So I finally, and I thought I could have easily was like, yeah, you're right. I, I could be like, yeah, fine. Sure. I'll stop because I don't want to get in trouble. But I was like, fuck that, dude, this is my passion. This is what I want to do way more than be here. So don't even try it. Like I will immediately get out because at that point I was pretty much done. I love the military. I love my guys. I love the experience, but I was tapped out. I wanted to get out so bad and move on with the next <laughs> chapter of my life. Yeah. So after my second deployment, we went to a place called Bob Metterlam and we were attached to a special forces unit and, and we had our, our revenge deployment. We called it because we, we kicked ass, man. We, excuse me, we, uh, we got eight confirmed kills or something. And, and we did a lot of support missions for the, the SF guys and Got to meet a lot of cool, you know, guys, the JTAC, which is the Air Force, like special forces dudes. But it was a really cool deployment, had a really good time. But again, though, I was pretty much burnt out at that point. I, I just wanted to go home, finish my time and get out. So at this point, I already had the mindset of getting out. I had a job already lined up. I started working at the city fire department on the weekends. So I already got hired as a firefighter my last couple of months of being in the army. And as soon as I got, and I told him, hey, I already got a job lined up. Can I get an early out? So I was supposed to get out in like January. I was supposed to get out on like actually like six year mark, but I got out in October instead and went right to work and got assigned to Milano fire department. And that was my first career department. So after getting, getting my mind straight, getting everything copacetic with my emotions and crap, I'm finally in a job that I love. I, I got a house, me and my wife at the time got a house and my daughter's two years old at this point and uh, life was great. And, um, getting a taste of freedom and getting a taste of like literally being able to not have to wake up for PT and kind of be in control of your own life at this point. Cause even in, in the military, you're always being told what to do at some point or some time. Now you're free. You can do what you want. You can live how you want. 
you know, kind of be the formations and shit like that. I started going a lot, a little crazy with the drinking again. And my wife and I started having some issues and we always had issues because of my issues and stemming from the past and crap like that. Things kind of slowly declined. And then I really lost, as my stepdad said, I lost my moral compass and I just did a lot of stupid shit that I really just regret. And eventually, eventually got to the point where she's like, I'm, I'm leaving. You're done. I'm done with you. I'm leaving you. And uh, she wanted to go back home to Buffalo and, and, and I didn't, and I didn't know what to, to, to do. I had my daughter here. She took my daughter that night left and I was so numb and, and paralyzed from what just happened. Cause I knew I fucked up so bad that my life was over my life, how I knew it was over. And, uh, and that was it. I was like, I, I was laying there with my gun in my hand and I was so paralyzed that I couldn't even get the gun up to my mouth or my head to pull the trigger, but I wanted to die so bad because I knew how bad I fucked up and not even that, but so it was seeing her take my daughter in my daughter's face of like, why am I leaving? What's going on, daddy? And I was like, it just tore me apart. And, and I hit ground zero and I literally hit ground zero and, and, and I called my mom and I told her, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through tonight. I, I just don't want to be alive right now. And she stayed on the phone with me all night. I remember that woke up the next morning and I made breakfast because I, I wanted her to come home and try to fix what just happened. And she was just so far gone that there was nothing to fix. And I just, for the next couple of weeks, I tried to like come to terms with what was going on because at that point I saw in her eyes that she didn't want anything to do with me. So it was my responsibility at this point to now figure out how I'm going to live the rest of my life and whether it's even worth living at this point, because I was so fucking done, but having my daughter made everything different. If I didn't have my daughter, I don't think I'd be here. I think that that's a fact right there. I was pretty much done. So whatever, I finally came to terms with it. Her and I actually started talking at the last couple weeks of being home or being in, in Louisiana. We packed up and uh, headed home, started heading home. And at this, so at, at this point now I've lost everything. I'm, I'm losing my wife. I'm Losing my kid because I'm not going to see her every day now. I know that's going to happen. I'm losing my job. I'm not to mention that I was also a, a reserve police officer for the uh, sister city because I wanted to do more and more, which I think uh, also was part of what happened is that I wasn't home enough and I started to fade away from my wife because I was just too wrapped up in first responder shit. And, uh, and I, I don't know, I, th I, I think that might be where it, things went sour is just being way too involved in shit and not caring much about being home. But yeah, so then we were heading home and on the way home, semi I'm sorry, heading home, home. from, from Fort, Fort Polk to, to from, Buffalo. From, yeah. So well, at this point we're living in New Lano, So it's like right outside of Fort Polk. So yeah, same area we were, so moving, yeah, we were living. You, you were saying when you say heading home, you're referencing the move from Louisiana back to, to, to Buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cause I, even though I lived in Louisiana for seven years, Buffalo was always still my home. So every time I say I'm going home, I always reference it as Buffalo. Cause that's just where I'm from. So that's how I say it. But Louisiana was my home for seven years. It was a huge like change for me. And I was super depressed about it because I knew I was leaving all my friends, my family, my fire department, everything was just in my, and people heard of course what happened too. So not even that, but my credibility was shot. Everybody thought I was a piece of shit. Not everybody, but like just what I did was shitty and just, I just felt like crap. Like I, I could not, I was at the lowest point of my life. Like I was just, I, I just felt like garbage. So whatever. And I like, we're just, let's just go home and just try to figure out what I'm gonna do with my life. And so we're driving home and, and I'm driving the U-Haul truck and my wife was behind me in her truck and 18 wheeler driver fell asleep at the wheel behind me and uh, cut her off. And then actually rear ended my truck and flipped me into a ditch five times. And, uh, and he went, he hit me so hard and he was going like 90 miles an hour. He actually went through his windshield, the seat, his seat of his truck broke off of the floor and he went through the windshield. I landed on my passenger side and I got out through the driver door, climbed up on the truck. My dog was in the car with me and I realized that she was running down the interstate and I called her back to me. So she was coming back to me. I looked over guys hanging out of his windshield. He was like 70 years old. I ran over there and he wasn't breathing. Bunch of National Guard soldiers saw what happened. They start running down. I'm limping and we get him down. We get him breathing. I, I, I think I did CPR for like maybe two minutes and the guy started breathing again. And then I blacked out. And then the next thing I remember was getting the sternum rub on my chest from a paramedic and they were loading me into the ambulance. 
And, uh, and I knew that this was going to make the news. I knew that people were going to see it. So I'm like, Hey, can I get, can I have the phone? I need to call my parents, let them know that I'm alive. And they're like, yeah, here you go. So I told them what happened. You know, my mom, of course, just like crying and, and freaking out. My dad's, I'm going to kill that motherfucker. <laughs> I'm like, no, don't worry about it. It was an accident. Like shit happens. I'm just glad it wasn't my kid or my wife or whatever. So I went to the trauma room. They did a full trauma assessment on me. I had a concussion, cracked ribs. I bruised femur which sucked because I wish I would have broken it instead. It would have healed quick, but I was pretty banged up. My dad had to fly down. And I think we were in Mississippi when it happened. And he literally had, we had to get a new truck and try to salvage whatever we could salvage. And then he drove us the rest of the way home. So it was just like a super awkward, it could not be any worse at this point of getting home. And like just trying to, I'm like, how come I, like I, and, and to this day, I'm like, I, I really felt like I, sh I was supposed to die in that accident because my life was over. I screwed up my, my, my wife's gone. My kid's gone. My job's gone. I'm like, this is, and I, as I'm flipping in the truck, I'm like, this is it. This is what is supposed to happen to me because I, this is what, this is it. And it didn't. So now we get back home in the middle of winter, drove through a blizzard coming into Buffalo, of course, good old Buffalo and dropped my, my, my ex-wife now at, at her, at her house or whatever it was. And then I had a place to stay at my mom's for, for a while. And, and I woke up the next morning, sore just defeated, not knowing what to do with myself. And, uh, and that's where I started my new life and trying to figure out if what I want to do with my life. And of course, first thing was first, I had to just figure out how to feel better. So my stu my stupidity or how we, how I usually manage things was a drink. So of course I was going out to bars, drinking, being just a piece of crap, just picking up girls, one night stands, crap like that, just doing whatever I had to do to, to numb the pain that I was feeling. Instead of focusing on my family, I was doing stupid crap instead of figuring it out. So even after the accident, I'm like still trying to figure out my crap. And at that point, that's where my stepdad and I had to talk and went to like a Christian men retreat thing. And I kind of got my shit back in order. And he's like, gotta find your moral compass, man. You're just losing your shit. And me and my mom were starting to butt heads because her and I don't ever really see eye to eye on certain things. And her and I got into some physical altercations and stuff. So they kicked me out of the house and I had to find my first apartment on my own, which I did. And finally got my first job because again, I was limping for a while. I couldn't even walk on my leg for a good couple of weeks. Got my first job at a PetSmart and, and that's where I met my wife now. She was actually my trainer and, uh, and. The first time I met her, she had fuck off right on her forehead. She looked pissed off. It was like six o'clock in the morning. And she was just told that she has to train this fucking douchebag that <laughs> upon a job that he didn't even want to do. So we're both just like pissy and, and shit like that. But we immediately connected and quickly found out that she was going through a bad breakup too. And uh, we just started talking. And after a couple of weeks, I finally mustered up the courage to ask her out, even though I kind of knew that it was probably not a good idea between what I was going through, what she was going through. And I felt like a piece of crap and that I didn't deserve anybody anyways. So at this point, I'm a very, I, I feel very low and I just feel very crappy about myself and didn't think I deserved anything like that anymore. But she, uh, she denied me at first. She said, no, nah, I don't think it's a good idea. I was like, cool. Friends are, friends are cool. That's cool. And, and then the, the next day she messaged me back. She's like, you know what, actually I, I will take you up on that date. And, and then that's where her and I started and went on a date and instantly connected. She instantly connected with my daughter. And then within a couple of months, she ended up moving in with me and ended up becoming like roommates. And, and then just, I, I quickly fell in love with her and we, we had some really bad uh, speed bumps in the beginning, but after finally realizing that I really wanted to try to give another shot at that, at this, I, I stopped drinking. I started uh, a medical marijuana program, which really helped me with my anxiety and my depression. And yeah, and I kind of got my shit back together and joined up with the, the local volunteer department that I was living at and uh, started everything all over again. And, and I just climbed the hill from there and became an EMT and uh, was with my first volunteer department here in Chief Dwaga for about three and a half years. And then uh, I, I was looking for AMR out in Buffalo for a bit too. And that kind of got a little bit much for me. And I ended up turning that down and went to security and uh, just kept building my way up and just doing new things, trying new things and getting into therapy. I, I started talking to people, started talking to veteran programs and got out some medication that actually really helped me. I had to stop doing the medical marijuana because here in New York state, you're not allowed to be an interior firefighter. If you're on medical marijuana, 
And also it's a very great area with uh, carrying a weapon and marijuana. So I didn't want to like cross any lines with that. So I became a, an armed guard because I was too damn broken to become a cop. So again, but no, I, and I, and then ever since then, I just been climbing my way up and, and taking it step by step and just reaching out to people, trying to help them out makes me feel better about myself and helping myself and, uh, and yeah. And so here I am. So let's now, get, let's go back. Cause you glossed over it. You, you just mentioned therapy. Yes. What did you, where did you find some, some therapy? What did you do and, and how, how did you work through some stuff? So therapy actually started when I got a call from a buddy of mine who was in Germany and he mentioned to me that he was very suicidal and that he was thinking about killing himself. And uh, I started researching like people to, for him to talk to like veteran programs and stuff like that. And then him and I just talked a lot and, and doing research on helping someone else out. I figured I found a, a cool program, excuse me, here locally called Western New York heroes. That is a huge company out here that helps veterans with anything that they really need, especially getting a service dog. And so in, in helping a friend out, I ended up finding a lot of stuff that helped me out. So I ended up getting a new service dog to, cause my other dog had to be retired cause she couldn't handle it after the accident cause she was in the truck with me when we crashed. But so I got a new service dog. I, I ended up finding a veteran program that uh, had therapists that I started talking to and then just trying to find other places as well, like a regular civilian. I ended up finding another local place called Horizon Health and started talking to a guy, his name's Rob and found out that he's also a veteran. So him and I can talk about civilian side of stuff and also military side of stuff. And as I started to talk more about stuff that I went through, the better I started realizing that I felt and a lot more stuff started coming up in my mind that I didn't realize bothered me until now. And like people always say, there's always like that one call that kind of like changes you and you're different after. And I had no idea that call was that first deal that I had to deal with. Um, when I was a lieutenant and uh, I had no idea that I had so much trauma from that and uh, dealing with that. Um, opening one door led to two more doors and then opening those doors led to more doors and um, finally just breaking down the walls of getting to the root of my issues and just finally being able to feel comfortable about accepting how life has turned out, accepting that you can't change it and trying to just strive forward and be better and do better every day. And that's kind of how I've been dealing with it now, because that's the skills and, and the tools that I've learned through these therapists. Um, and not to mention just being able to sit there and talk to like a lot of my, my veteran brothers and sisters, you know, I'm with a, a motorcycle group called uh, combat veteran motorcycle association. And those guys always have had my back since I joined up with them. And if I ever need anything, they're always there. So just finding a group of people that can like be there for you. It's an amazing feeling to not feel like alone and not to, and to know that you're not alone, especially with the stuff that you're dealing with. So a lot of therapy came from actual therapists, but like 50% of it came from actual therapists. And then the other 50 became from just talking to people, brothers and sisters about shit that I deal with, whether it's first responder side or military side, um, or even just civilian shit, like dealing with everyday life sucks too. You don't have to be a first responder or a soldier or a military guy to, to be stressed out or depressed and anxious and still life sucks right now. Look at what's going on. So anybody should be able to reach out to, you know, somebody else for help and not be ridiculed or looked down upon for that. And that's kind of where I always was like, yeah, screw that. I'm not going to talk to anybody, but it really did open up the door for me to get where you at today. So now I got three kids now. I got a beautiful daughter. She just turned one and my son just turned three. My daughter's nine. She lives with her mom in South Carolina. I get to see her every other holidays. We, we rotate and then I get to see her for the summer and then she goes back home for, uh, for the school year. So that kind of sucks, but I get to see her and that's, I'm happy about that. And she's having a good time and she's doing good. So that's good. That's all I really cared about. Now uh, I've left the security gig. I, I'm actually a dog trainer now because I've been working with dogs for so long and I just, I love helping people and, and helping people bond with their, their furry, their furry pet or their furry, uh, relative or friend, uh, family member. I've had people come to me like, yeah, man, my dog is so aggressive or I can't handle this dog's too crazy. Being able to see a dog transform from that and seeing the person also transform and, and learn how to take care of it and deal with certain situations. 
make me feel like I have a new, what do you call it? A new purpose in life. So on top of that, I'm also still doing the volunteer department. I'm, I'm with a company now out here in North Tonawanda. The company is paid, but we have like, I think six volunteer companies that respond with the paid guys to help out whatever they need with. Yeah. So I'm still doing that. I'm still an EMT and uh, yeah. And, and I just keep taking every day as I can. And I just that make me feel like I have a purpose or, or make me feel like, uh, like I'm doing something that's going to benefit somebody else. Uh, I try not to be selfish and I try not to be greedy with life, but sometimes you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. Drinking, I've been able to calm down a lot on the drinking. I drink now for pleasure, not for medication. Me and my, we are just a great team. We, we are a great team when it comes to parenting and everything else. And it's just, it's amazing when I look back on what I went through and look at where I am now. I'm like, man, everything really does kind of happen for a reason. And if you don't believe that, but then if, if you don't believe in that, fair enough, but look at my story and just think, I don't care how low you are or what lowest point in your life, you can bounce back. There's always room for improvement. If you're on rock bottom, the whole way goes up. So don't give up. Don't just be like, oh, I'm done with it. Cause there's days, even to this day, like I still have issues. I still deal with my depression, anxiety, even with medication and stuff, but it'll pass. My mom always says that she's like, it'll pass as, as bad as it hurts, as bad as it sucks, it will pass. Talk to people, you know, don't reach for your usual muse, reach for someone to talk to. Don't reach for a bottle because the only way for the only way is down with that. It's not going to help anything. It makes it actually worse, but, and I'm just striving forward, taking in there and taking it day by day and, and just doing the best I can with what I've got. Which is, that's the best that anybody can really be expected to do. Life is tough, whether I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care if you do a boring desk job. I don't care if you're freaking CIA, no matter what you're doing in life, everybody's got their own challenges. Everybody's got their own problems and everybody deals with it differently, but there's nothing that is bad that you can't get through it. And like I said, there's days that I feel like that too, but thank God I've got such a good support system to talk me out of those bad times. All right, so let's get to those two questions I ask everybody. Sure. All right, the first one's going to be about an everyday carry, just based off of what we what I call the show. What's an everyday carry for you that you feel naked? For me, it's my wife got me this necklace, this silver chain necklace, and uh, my my service dog, Lacey. She was a lab. She was my first service dog. She passed away last June, like right after my birthday unexpectedly, she was only nine. She had her cremated and I had her ashes and I got a necklace that I have her ashes in. And if I don't have that around my neck, I feel super naked without it. So I always keep that on me. So I know I have her close by me. Yeah. So that's, that's my everyday carry. <laughs> All right. And I, we, we glossed over the service dog part and I know that's a whole nother part of your life. And, uh, oh, yeah. how long have you had a service dog and when did you get one? I got a service dog right after my first deployment because right when we got back, the first thing they asked us, are you going to, you know, seek any medical attention for anything? And I said, yep. I'm like, I cannot sleep. I just wanted to sleep. I just could not sleep. Immediately I got thrown into some services and to be helped out with my, de my depression and anxiety and my PTS. And uh, I never even knew about service dogs, but a buddy of mine had one and we were out at Walmart one time. And I ended up having a panic attack out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, everything got super dizzy. I went tunnel vision and I dropped to the floor and his service dog reacted to it and comforted. And I, and I held on to him until it passed. And he's, dude, you shouldn't make Lacey a service dog. Cause I got me, me and my ex-wife got a dog for our kid to grow up with just to have as a pet, not as a service. But it, yeah, right in 2011, right. Or 2012, when I got back, when that happened, I decided to find a program and my, my letter signed by my doctor and her and I went through the program, it took about a year and she was my first service dog. And then after I retired her, I got chief, my service dog. Now he's a Belgian Malinois. So I've, I've had a service dog since 2012 to now. I've never not had a service dog by my side and it just makes it so much easier to go out and deal with everyday life, crowds, people, noises, smells. He keeps me anchored to like where I can just sit there and like pet, you know, grab his ear, touch his ear, pet his head. And I feel like myself coming back down to earth and, and a relaxation. So it's such an amazing, and, and whether you're a first responder or civilian or a military person, man, dogs are such an amazing therapy. And that's a fantastic resource to have, especially for anybody in the situations or in yeah, in the situation you've been in and through. So that's great to hear. So what a book. 
You have a book to suggest? Oh my gosh, a book. Not, I mean, not off the top of my head. I, I do like to read what I do. There's a couple podcasts I listen to. A lot of military guys and, and firefighters have books out. There was a podcast about one of the firefighters that went through the Charleston fire, the, the, cow, the, uh, super furniture. Sofa. Yeah. And he wrote a book about overcoming his anxiety and stuff from seeing his friends be because he responded, he was off duty and responded to it. I don't remember what the book is called off the top of my head, but he's, he's got a great book, um, about overcoming his issues that he went through as a firefighter and dealing with the death of his friends and shit like that. Yeah. You're referencing um, so for the Travis house. Yeah. Yeah. That's his name. Yeah. Dude. What a great story. What a great guy. And his book, I'd want to get, I'm going to get it soon. Um, I've just been, I haven't got a chance to, but yes, yeah, he's got a good book from what I've heard. So if anybody wants to read a book about overcoming some shit, man, that guy has, I can't even imagine what he's been through. And I'm it, sure the name of the book is create your own light. Okay. Yeah. I knew it had something to do with the light. I just could not remember off the top of my head. Yeah, it's definitely a value, valuable one for anybody that, that's experiencing or has experienced some PTS or, or some trauma. And it's, it's a, it, like I said, it's a valuable one to, to offer up. So I appreciate that. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Man, and I go mean, ahead. And, oh, I'm sorry. Nope. No, I, I was just going to let you guys know. I, I am in the process of writing my own book. I'm not like a professional writer and I have not the first clue about books, but uh, I am like two or three chapters in of writing my own book, maybe someday some year i'll have a book out <laughs> yeah we'll suggest your book on the next show how about that <laughs> nice all right listen man i appreciate the time you spent with me on this uh sunday morning and i know you've got a you've got a halloween party or something to get to and then a buffalo bills game later this afternoon Absolutely. to watch so hopefully you have a good rest of your oh, sunday yeah. and i will i'll talk yeah, to you in a little bit so man. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate you having me. And uh, sorry it took so long. Oh, no, you're fine. You're good. I loved it. All right. Take care and enjoy the rest of your Sunday, man. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself and remember to check in on each other.